And so uh, my options were limited, so I uh, picked up some work as a personal trainer in a gym for a bit, didn't really love that, and didn't really enjoy it, and I had a few shifts. And I was attending a church at the time, and the youth pastor that I was with there, who was uh, overseeing the youth ministry, uh, said to me, hey, you should come back here all the time, you should come back to your old high school, uh, which was a public high school, which was quite rough, and teach the year, you know, the, the, the high school students about Jesus. I was 18, 19, trying to think I was the coolest kid in the, in the world. I think that's the dumbest idea in the world. I am not going to do that. Go back and teach people about Jesus. But he convinced me, and so I went along. And the funny thing was, I, I loved it. I really enjoyed it. So much so, I started teaching high school scripture at other schools. But the hardest thing of being a high school scripture teacher uh, uh, was that um, you, you had no real authority. I was, I was at a rough school teaching. I was 19, no training as a teacher no experience as a high school, as a scripture teacher, um, being given a class of 30 to 40 kids for an hour with no supervision, just saying, good luck, and off you'd go, right? I had classes where kids wanted to fight me. I had classes where kids wanted to throw chairs at each other. I had one class, I this one day I had this class at Hunters Hill High School, Jamie Foxton, uh, your school, I had a, and I walked into this classroom, and there was holes in the wall, smashed windows, I'm like, where am I? And I walked in, and the bell had just rung, and I walked in the classroom, the kids were going to come, and there were no chairs in the room, like none. And I thought, I've got an hour with 30 kids, and then 40 kids turned up. I thought, what am I going to do for, for an hour with no chairs in the room? It was absolute chaos, it was absolute chaos. One student hid in the cupboard up the back for the whole hour. <laughs> the whole hour, he didn't come out. And he came out, and the bell rang and said, ta-da, I'm like, hey, I said, well played, props to you, like you got me, but I'm glad you were quiet. And so it was really, it was really good. And the hardest thing, as I said, being a scripture teacher is you have no real authority in the school, you're not on the staff, I, I wasn't even a teacher, just a volunteer from a church coming in to teach people about Jesus. And the teachers were just thankful that I was taking their class off them. Like they were just like, thank you, and it's like legging it saying, you know, you just have them, good luck with that, because they were hating the school they were teaching at. It was tough. And the trick was, uh, was to try to make the class think that you had authority over them, which you didn't. Uh, power to discipline them, even though you had no power. Because as soon as they knew you had no power or authority in that school, they were just absolutely cut loose. They knew they didn't have to listen to you or obey you in any way, um, and you had no authority to do anything about it. I don't know about you, but I remember back in, uh, when I was at school, the best days were where you walk in your classroom, and you look around, and you see you have a casual teacher. That was the best, wasn't it? You knew the casual teacher was there for a day, had no real power or authority of you, over you, and so you knew you were in for an easy ride that day. No authority. See, I, I, I think this, I think this, this point on the, on, on the screen, authority is tied to the identity of the person making a command. We obey when we recognize a higher authority. We obey gladly when we recognize a higher and trustworthy and good authority. Today we're going to look at the 10 plagues we found in the book of Exodus, probably one of the most famous stories in the book of Exodus. And uh, we're going to listen in and see what, how God reveals himself to us through this story. We're going to see that God alone is the one with all power and all authority. He alone is the mighty God who is unrivaled and unequaled. He is the one in control of nature and can do as he pleases. And in this chapter of chapters of Exodus, we're going to see God go up against almost humanity's best, uh, against, up against King Pharaoh. 
who was the king of the strongest nation at that time, who himself had power, human power. And it's going to be God versus Pharaoh and see who comes out on top. And I think as we, as we look at this passage, as we look at Exodus 7 to 10, and as, as, as the question is going to be, do we recognize and worship God as he's revealed himself to be? Do we worship him as the supreme one who has all authority, the one who is to be trembled before? You know, I wonder if you were to, you know, to sit and think for a second and, th- and think, you know, what words come to mind when you think about God? What words would you use to describe him? Would you use words like holy, unequaled, unrivaled, powerful, all authority? Do these words come to mind? You know, for me, to be honest, I, I think for, they, they don't often come to mind when, I, when I'm thinking about God. I think often we can push God to the peripheries of our lives, come to Him when we need Him like a vending machine, maybe say hi on a Sunday, maybe at a small group as well if He's lucky. And we can become too comfortable with Him and we can domesticate Him. And by the way, we treat Him and view Him, we lessen His authority and power and lordship over our lives. Maybe we agree with him when it lines up with what we're feeling, what we want to do. But if it doesn't, we just sort of ignore it and just move on, hoping that no one notices. So my hope and prayer is, as we look at Exodus 7 to 10 today, we would see the true identity of God. We would see his power, his supremacy, and his glory. And because of who he is, we would recognize his good authority over the world and over our lives. But let's have a look at what the Bible says. So here is my outline. We're going to track uh, through this. So who is the Lord, the Lord Almighty, and the merciful Lord? That's what we're going to go to as we look at this passage today. But remember, uh, Exodus is a narrative. It's a story. It's always helpful with a story to know where we come from and where we're going to. And so in the little uh, end of last year, we did this Bible timeline. At the moment, we are back up here here, Exodus, that's where I'll be pointing, Exodus, just read the script gap, just read it, it's Exodus right there with Moses, right, we're back up there in Exodus, and we know that in the beginning God created the world and he created good, but humanity sinned against him and rebelled, we know that, and we were made for a relationship with him, but because of our sin we broke it, and the rest of the story, the rest of this whole story really is God's rescue mission, him restoring humanity back to himself, and it starts with a man named Abraham, who you meet in Genesis, uh, around Genesis 12 or so, a bit early, uh, about Genesis 10 or so. And God gives Abraham three promises, which is part of his rescue plan. This is part of interaction here. What are those three promises? Call them out. Land, fa- family, blessing. Chelsea's just nailed all three. Thank you, Chelsea. Well done. Good job. She carried all of you. Land, family, and blessing are the three promises that God promised to bring His rescue plan about. Land, family, and blessing. And uh, God's creating for Himself a new people through Abraham, His people which become the nation of Israel. God's chosen people whom He chooses out of mercy. And He'll give them a great land and He will bless them. And we see sort of through Genesis, we don't really see this plan coming to fruition yet. But at the end of Genesis, we see that God is beginning to bring Himself a people. Um, uh, a family, and that is the nation of Israel. And, and, it, and at the start of Exodus, we read of this family growing in a foreign land of Egypt. 
and they become so big as a people that Pharaoh starts to fear them. And so what he does is he enslaves them. He enslaves them. And horrendously, he orders the killing of all the Hebrew baby boys, slaughters them, slaughters all of them. Absolute evil. I think Pharaoh is one of the most evil people in the Bible. Mass killing. And God sees this evil and horror and acts it, and he raises up a man called Moses, who he miraculously, miraculously saves from this genocide. And God confronts Moses at the burning bush after Moses has run into the desert because he's afraid, because he's just killed an Egyptian for their treatment of his people as slaves. So, God, uh, so Moses is in the desert and God confronts him. And he calls Moses to go and be an instrument of him and confront the Pharaoh, this King Pharaoh. Moses is called to go and confront him and say, let God's people go. And God is going to confront, is going to confront Pharaoh through Moses in a very public and huge way. And the battle lines are really drawn here. This is the biggest and best humanity has to offer versus God of the universe. It's like a boxing match. It introduced two fighters. It's God versus Pharaoh. And it's almost like the Tower of Babel all over again. Humanity setting itself up with no reference to God. Not at all. And God is not going to have this. He will show himself to who who he will be, who he is, and he will free his people and show everyone that he is the creator God. And he alone is God. And so he sends Moses to Pharaoh to say, The God of Israel has come to me and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And we saw last week as Jez preached that uh, Pharaoh says no way and he doubles down on it. He makes it even harder. He doubles the workload of the Israelite people from slaves. Then we get to chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And this is really key for the whole story. Let's have a look at this. Because afterward, Moses and Aaron went, to say, and went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is this Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh says, Who is this God you speak of? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And really, Pharaoh is saying, who is this God of the slaves to issue these commands to me? Do you know who I am? I am the king. I am a living deity. Who is your God to confront me? And so these battle lines are drawn. Pharaoh will not acknowledge God and therefore not listen nor obey him. And God knows this. And he knows that Pharaoh won't, won't follow. It's interesting. In Egyptian culture, there would have been there are hundreds of gods, not just one. There were over a hundred different gods. They had gods for everything. And so Pharaoh's issue isn't simply, I do not believe in God. It's, I do not believe in your God, and I will not obey your God. Pharaoh is refusing to humble himself under the one true God. And so God sets about showing who he is to Pharaoh. Let's jump to chapter 7 and see how this confrontation begins. Look at this on the screen. And the Lord says to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and, and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. 
when I stretch up my hand against Egypt and bring, them, bring out the people of Israel from among them. Pharaoh was asking this question and saying, uh, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Who is this God of the Hebrews that I should listen to him? Well, God is going to show him who he is. He's going to reveal himself uh, again and again and saying, so that you may know that I am the Lord. I alone am the Lord. In sentence five, he says that I'm the Lord. He's going to show him signs and wonders as acts of judgment for what Pharaoh has done. And then it all begins with a battle of the staffs, a battle of the serpents. Have a look at chapter 7, sentences 8 to 13, which says this. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourself by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and he became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh was hardened. His heart was hardened, and he wouldn't listen to them as the Lord had said. It's the first confrontation Battle of the staffs, they turn to serpents, and Aaron's staff then eats all the other staffs around the serpents around it. But Pharaoh will not listen, as it says there. And God is not surprised at, at his refusal. He predicts it, and God will get his attention, and he'll get it through sending the ten plagues. And Pharaoh will finally obey, and he will know that God is the only Lord. I have three children, Jet, Indy, Savannah. Indy, my, my middle daughter, has phenomenal hearing, a great, listener, great, great hearing things, and she loves listening in on adult conversations. I was talking to Katie, I look over and I see Indy staring intently at me, listening hard to what I'm saying, trying to understand and unpack who I'm talking about and why I'm saying things. And Katie ha- and I have to always be careful because we, uh, I look around and I see Indy looking at me in the corner of her eye, looking at me, just staring intently. Always sneaking around, listening, sneaky, sneaky Indy. Anyway, what's funny is, is she has selective hearing though. She has selective hearing. See, at my house, around 6 o'clock each night, the same argument breaks out again and again and again. And it's always the argument about whose turn in the shower it is to go first. My kids hate going to shower first. So much so, we've had to make a roster. And we've set, we set the roster behind the door to make sure it's even so everyone gets their fair turn of going first. It never helps because Katie and I can forget we're up to in the roster and they always say, I went first last night. No, I went first. And then so this fight broods every night. And so uh, when it's Indy's turn in the shower, I call it, hey, Indy, it's your turn in the shower. I don't hear anything. And then five minutes later, she's still in the shower. And I go and find her and say, Indy, I asked this for you how to go in the shower. She's like, I'm so sorry, Dad. I didn't hear you. Now... And you can hear an ant walk across the ground in my kitchen, right? <laughs> she has like superpowers, like you can hear anything. And she's like, no, no, I, I'm sorry, I didn't hear. I'm like, she has selective hearing. She's choosing simply not to pay attention or obey when I ask her to go in the shower. You see, Pharaoh chooses here not to listen or obey the Lord. He's saying, who is the Lord that I should obey him, he asks. Underlying, I think, what Pharaoh was saying, he's really saying, why should I let this God meddle in my affairs? Why should I let someone else tell me what I should do, how I should act, how I should live, how I should rule? Who does this God think He is to tell me, a living deity, that I should let these people go? 
And I think when we think about this, right, when we think about, hey, what's what Pharaoh saying? I don't think often we are that dissimilar to Pharaoh in this respect. Like, I don't know about you, but we don't like to be told what to do. I like to be told what to do. We often push back on authority, and especially it's an Australian thing too, I think. We push back on authority. No one can or should tell me what I should do or how I should live. I think even as followers of Jesus, we call Jesus Lord, we call to take up our cross and die to ourselves and follow Him, but how often do we try and limit our obedience? What is the least we can do to get away with, with being a follower of Jesus? Instead of seeing God's love and good leading over our lives, because He cares for us and shows us how to live, I often think, what, what's, what's the minimal I can do? Or how far do I have to go? And do I have to deny my feelings? Do I have to miss out on that fun? We often can say, yeah, I'm, I'm saved by grace though. I know that God will forgive me anyway. And does God have a right to tell me how to use my money? how to treat others, what to live for, what are my priorities, and how to get relationships? Does he have a right? Does God deserve to be obeyed? Who is he, and what right does he have to speak into my life? This is the question that Pharaoh is asking here. This is what he's saying, it's underlying what he's saying, what he's doing. So God answers by saying, right, I'll show you who I am. I'm going to send ten plagues on you. And he was showing himself to be the Lord Almighty. Let's jump to the next part of the story, the ten plagues. Just as God had warned, he will do signs and wonders and bring about divine judgment, and he does. And in chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10, uh, just the text just slowly walks through all these plagues. And I will leave you to read that, because if I did that, the sermon would be over. Or we're going to leave you to read that, and next week we'll focus just simply on the tenth plague, the angel of death, and the Passover. That's next week. But it's interesting as you think about the plagues, you think about why did God send 10? That is so many. That is relentless. Why couldn't he have just sent the, the angel of death once and that's it? Why the first nine? It took the tenth one to change for his mind. Why the first nine? Well, God answers this question in Exodus 9, 15 and 16, which says this. He says, for by now, I could have put up my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence. And you would have been cut off from the earth. But, I, but for this purpose, I've raised you up to show you my power, so that my, my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God's purpose in sending these ten plagues is to show His power. It's to show who He is, the Lord Almighty. There's no one like Him. And again and again through these four chapters of the plagues, you hear this repeated phrase uh, continually said. Let me show you these. This is Exodus 7, 5, which we've already looked at. It says, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. 7, 17, Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the stuff that is in my hand, I will strike the waters that is in the Nile. 8, 10, He says, Tomorrow, Moses said, But as you say, so, it may, so you may know that there, is, that, that there is no one like the Lord our God. 9, 14, This time I will send my plagues on you yourself and your servants and your people, so that, you may know there is none like me in all the earth. 10, 1 and 2, the Lord says to Moses, Go in for, to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, that you may tell, them in, your, tell, you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grand, uh, grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them. Why? That you may know that I am the Lord. These plagues that God sends, these ten plagues, are an act 
actually an act of divine revelation, of God revealing Himself to be the almighty, powerful one. He is the Lord. Pharaoh asks the question, why should I obey? Who is this Lord? God says, I'll show you who I am and why I should be obeyed. There's no one like me. But let me show you each play, a little, a little uh, table that I found um, that I think is a little bit helpful. It sets out all the plagues, the ten plagues on the left-hand side there. And where the plagues start with the first one is the Nile turning into blood. Now, think how big the Nile is. It's huge. It is the water source, the main water source of the Egyptians. And you read in the text there, it's not just the Nile that turns into blood, but any sort of water they had in buckets or anywhere all turned to blood. All of it. Ruined. And stank, it says. Horrible smell. And then God sends a plague of frogs. Then gnats, which are like lice. And then flies. And then a plague of disease that wipes out all the cattle. Then boils and then hail that destroyed all the crops. And then if anything's left, then locusts to get more of the crops. So basically God has wiped out all the water source and the food source. Food for the cattle, meats, but also the, the produce of the land wiped out. All gone. Then he sends sickness and disease. And he keeps going and going and going. And then three days of darkness and then the, finally the angel of death. God is showing them. I am the Lord, don't mess with me. He's showing that He alone is the Lord Almighty. And these plagues greatly affected every single person in Egypt. No one escaped. This was the most powerful, affluent nation on the planet at the time. And God says, this is what I can do to you. Now, I'm sure you've read this and you know this story, but I want to show you something even more interesting that I've looked at and studied this week. Is that, as I said before, that the Egyptians lived a very uh, divine, pluralistic culture. As in, they had many, many gods they worshipped, over 100 gods they worshipped. And each god that they had they worshipped would bring blessings on certain parts of their life. So there was the god of, of love, there was the god of fertility, there was the god of food, there was the god of the sun, there was the god of the sky. All these gods they worshipped. They had all these temples they worshipped at. And what's interesting to note is that many of the plagues that God sends are specific attacks on the Egyptian gods. And him saying, here's your God, I just beat it. Here's your God, I destroyed it again. Let me show you this. So on the screen there, uh, it says gods of Egypt there. So firstly, Happy, which yes was a god, Happy, was the Egyptian god of fertility. He was worshipped. And it was closely associated with the Nile, River Nile. So what does God do? He turns all the Nile into blood. Saying, I'm more powerful than this, this, this God of the Nile, this, this God of fertility, happy. Heket was an, another fertility goddess whose head was the head of a frog. So what does God do? He shows that frogs listen to him, so he descends lots of frogs in the second plague. A couple of other Egyptian gods had the heads of a cow, like Hathor, the goddess of love, and the Egyptians worshipped that god. So what does God do? He sends a plague that wipes out all the cattle. Showing that he's the king to feed, king to feed cattle, king to feed the heads of other gods. The, Egyptians, uh, the Egyptian god Nut, the sky goddess, couldn't stop the hail when God sent it. Or the east wind that brought the locusts in the seventh and eighth plague. The Egyptian sun god Ray was defeated in the ninth plague when God caused darkness to remain on the three, over for three days. God, God is showing here to the Egyptians that he is the one true God. You can worship a hundred gods if you want to, but they are nothing. They tremble before me. 
that he is the Lord Almighty and all other gods are powerless and absolute pretenders in, in his wake. And what's interesting to notice at the end of each plague is the Egyptians' responses. The first few, the, uh, the, the magicians can sort of match it a little bit. But I get, to the third pl- I get to the third plague and they're starting to say things like, wow, this is the finger of God. Then by the eighth plague, after all they've seen, we read this in Exodus 10, 10 verse 7, or 10, 7. It says this, Then the servant said to him, so the magicians and the servants of Pharaoh said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, let them go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? They're realizing that God is bringing this wave of destruction over Egypt. And they're just saying, look, this is the hand of God. Please, Pharaoh, relent. Let them go. They see it and get the power of God. But what does Pharaoh do? He refuses to humble himself. He refuses to listen or acknowledge God as the Lord Almighty, and he hardens his heart. And by no means am I a builder. I'm hopeless when it comes to building things with my hands. I'm atrocious. Uh, my brother is a builder. He got all that power just pushed over to him. And so when I need something built, I'm on the phone to Anthony straight away. And uh, a little while ago, a few years ago, we worked on my backyard together. And the first thing we did was build a deck. I mean, he built a deck. I just stood beside him and watched and encouraged him. You know, good job. And I just kept him company. But one thing he did make me do was dig all the holes, all the footings. And uh, you dig all the holes, quite a big hole. And then we, you uh, set the posts, these steel posts, that were going to hold the weight of the deck on these posts. Once the posts were in the hole, we had to get a, a bag of concrete and then pour that into the hole. And uh, now, con- if you know concrete, it comes in this bag that's quite heavy, but it's just like this dust, this grey dust with gravel mixed in with it. And you pour that in, and once the, it comes out, it's dust, and then you add water, and then it's uh, quite soft, and you can move the posts around and adjust them a little bit. Uh, but, uh, and my job was to, to, to put, the, put it in, put the water in, mix it around a little bit. But as you add the water, as you stir, after a while, the post becomes harder and harder because the concrete starts to set. And over time, about 24 hours later, the concrete is so hard, it's almost as hard as rock. And it can hold the whole weight of a deck with this concrete that is super hard. It goes from this soft powder-like substance that you can mold and you can shape for a little while, but over time, as it gets harder, it hardens to this rock-like material that holds the whole weight of a huge deck, and everyone stands on that as well. You know, I think about that. As we read this story of the plagues, and we read the story of Pharaoh, and we see that as he sees that the Lord is, his, uh, the Lord is God alone, Pharaoh hardens his heart more and more and more. And it almost reminds me of this substance becoming more and more hard, like almost like a concrete. It sets. And his heart becomes so hard that God gives him over to that. And it's like concrete setting. He's blinded by his pride, by his thirst for power, that his heart becomes harder and harder and harder. Even though it's clear to everyone else around him, this is the hand of God, his heart becomes hard like concrete. And God shows himself that he will not be defeated by anybody, that he alone is the Lord Almighty. And I want to say, I think that this, this story of Pharaoh is almost like a case study for the deceitfulness of sin. I don't know, but how often do, do we or do I, in the real time of our own lives, get caught up and entangled in sin in our lives? I think at first, when we first sort of sin in some area, we get a bit shocked by it. Second time, we're a bit, oh, that's, I shouldn't do that again. And then third time, it sort of becomes more of a pattern. And the fourth, we're like, oh, look, it's, I'm just a sinful human being. 
and we get used to it, and our hearts slowly become harder. We find excuses to justify our sinful actions and our proud actions. We blame others. We justify it by saying, well, it's not my fault, really, is it? And all the while, our heart gets harder and harder. And when it all unravels, we often wade further into sin rather than accepting our mistakes and repenting. And when sin gets a full hold of us, it drags us deeper and deeper and deeper down. And it's this language of our hearts getting harder. The book of Hebrews talks a lot about these warning passages and, and warning us not to harden our hearts. Hebrews 3, 4 and 7 say this, Today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Stark warning. Hebrews 2.1 speaks of not drifting away or becoming lazy due to a hard heart. Hebrews 3.12 says, See to it that none of you have a sinful, unbelieving heart. These are warnings from a loving God saying, saying, take this seriously. Take sin seriously. I want to say, if there is sin in your life, the sin of greed, of pornography, of hate, of unforgiveness, of bitterness, of anger, of idolatry, of covetousness, of sexual sin, whatever it is, we need to heed the warning of Pharaoh and act. Heed the warning of Scripture, of our loving God, so we need to act. We need to confess it to God. Run to Him in light of the cross, knowing there's forgiveness. We need to deal with it, though, not sweep it on the carpet, but deal with it and confess it to Him and find freedom and love that is there. Talk to a Christian friend. Talk to a pastor here, whatever it is. But take action on this because sin is deceitful and it hardens our heart. We've seen that Pharaoh's question is this, is who is this God that I should obey him? And God says, I'm going to show you who I am through the power of these plagues that I'm going to send and what I'm like. But we also read, if you, if you, if you read this narrative, you read also that God is gracious. He is gracious. See, Pharaoh and the Egyptians treated God's people horribly. And they're for no other reason rather than they are numerous. Pharaoh slaughters Hebrew babies, which I cannot even fathom. And he enslaves God's people for many, many years. Now, God had every right to wipe out this people without warning, without consultation. But he doesn't. In Exodus 9, chapter 8, Exodus 9, sentence 15 and 16, God even says that I could have wiped out with one plague, but I, I'm not going to. He gave Pharaoh a chance to turn to him. He warned him. He warned the Egyptians that he revealed himself as the God Almighty and gave him a chance to come to him because our God is gracious. But think about the Israelites. Have a look at this passage here from Exodus 8, 22 and 23. It says this, But on that day I will set apart the, uh, the land of Goshen, where my people Israel dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I'll put divisions between my people and your people. God frees his people from the, from the effects of the plagues. Now, I wonder if you've ever thought, why? Why does he do that? Are they better? Are they, are they uh, more righteous or holy? Or are they nicer people? Well, the answer is no. They too were sinful. They too were rebellious. But God chose to have mercy. He chose to bring mercy. Because God is a merciful God. We know that 2,000 years ago, God demonstrated His mercy in sending His Son to earth on a rescue mission. Because God is merciful. Jesus came and lived the perfect life that we never could, then dies on a cross for our sin and our rebellion to make the way, the only way back to our Creator. To restore humanity back to where it belongs. 
and our sin and our debt and rebellion is paid for once and for all. Why? Not because of we're good people or we've done right things or we deserve it. Because God is merciful. And the message of Jesus is that this offer of mercy is for all people. No matter who you are or what you've done, it is a message for all time. Why? Because God is merciful. You know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not die but have eternal life. I want to say, if you are stuck in sin today and you've realized it, if you've realized that your heart is growing hard to God, if you've realized that you haven't been taking God seriously or you never have, this is the answer. Running to Jesus. Running to God's mercy. Knowing that you are loved and you are forgiven because God is merciful. My son and I, uh, Jet, we read, we've been reading together the, the, uh, the Narnia Chronicles for the last little while. And uh, the book written by C.S. Lewis. And there's a character in this book, as you would know, called Aslan. I don't know if you've read this. This is my first time reading it with my son. We read it together at night. And, uh, and Aslan is this, is this, for Lewis, is, this, is the character of Jesus, basically, in the story. And, and Lewis is a beautiful writer. And uh, uh, I think the way that uh, Lewis describes Aslan as Jesus is such a good description of who he is. As Jet and I read the story together, we often both can't wait. We're just hoping that Aslan's there on the next page. Like, come on, Aslan, where are you? Like, we want to meet you again, see what you are like. And I want to read to you just a paragraph from Lewis, from, uh, from, Narnia, from the Narnia Chronicles. And I want to read to you this description of Aslan. The main characters in the book are, are in the, early in the book, are children who have been transported into the Narnia world through a cupboard. And they meet uh, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And they describe to the children what Aslan is like. Let me read to you this paragraph. It says this. Lucy asked, is he a man? Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who he's the king of the beast? Aslan is. And he's a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ah, oh, said Susan. I, th- I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, make no, no mistakes, said Mrs. Beaver. If there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they are either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver is telling you? Who said anything about safe? Because he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king. Aslan is not safe, but he is good, and he is the king. Aslan is not a tame lion, but he is good. Today we have looked at Exodus 7 to 10. We've seen that God alone is the Almighty One. God's identity and authority is revealed through His, through his mighty deeds shown in the plagues. There is none like Him, no one rivals Him, He's unequaled. All other gods are fraud before him, and even the most powerful beings are nothing when they come to him. 
He alone is the Lord Almighty. He is powerful, sovereign, and merciful. And because he's the king, he has all authority. You know, as I've worked through this passage this week, I've been reminded and confronted again with the true and living God. And the God of Exodus here is the same God we worship here today. It is the same God. He is not to be messed with. He is not to be domesticated or sidelined. Like Aslan, we should worship him with reverent fear and awe as the Lord Almighty. He is good, but not safe, and we should treat him accordingly. He will not be ignored. And I want to challenge you to worship him as he's revealed himself to be. You know, I think there are two dangers for us as we come to approach a God like this. The danger is we become too familiar with him. We know we are saved by grace, and so we can take that for granted as we approach the God of the universe. We can treat God as this faithful, old, trusted, dear friend that we just put in the corner over here. who will always be there. Even if we don't speak to him for a while, we'll know he'll be okay because he understands what we're going through. He understands how hard it is for us. He knows what we are like. And I think we become too familiar and comfortable with a God like this. And he loses his holiness and his reverence and the holy fear that he deserves and the obedience that is due to him because of who he is. We have shrunk him down and put him on the cupboard as a mantle. And we need to repent of this view. We need to sit back and marvel at his power and his holiness as we in the Bible. Worship him with reverent fear as we're called to do. And to see that we do not deserve to approach a being as so holy as he does, but then revel and celebrate in the gospel that we can approach him through Christ. But the other danger is only fearing him. Obeying out of a fear, never knowing whether God's angry with me or not. Feeling like I'm not good enough to approach him. Or that he is distant because of somehow of my behaviors. And it can lead us to doubting our faith, running from him rather than to him. And doubting whether he loves us at all. Our God is merciful and invites us to come as we are. And we need to hold these two truths together to worship Him as He deserves. He is powerful and holy and He is merciful and loving. And we need to come to Him as He is. And I want to challenge you to worship God as He revealed Himself to be. He is good but not safe. He is almighty, supreme, powerful and merciful. He is the one true God and deserves all praise. Let me pray for us. Lord, we want your word to be both a comfort and a challenge. For those of us who are feeling distant from you, who are feeling like we are not worthy of you, who are feeling like that you don't like us, Lord, remind us of your mercy. Remind us that you are a God who loves and has shown his love so clearly in sending your son Jesus to rescue us. Lord, for those of us who are becoming too familiar with you, too comfortable, Lord, wake us out of our slumber. Revive our souls again to see your glory and your goodness and your power, and that we cannot domesticate you or put you in the corner and run to you only when we need you. But help us to live in a reverent fear of you, 
We thank you that you reveal yourself to be this holy God. We hear Isaiah proclaim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Help us to live in reverent fear of you and then celebrating in the cross of Christ that we can come to you as your children. Help us to hold these two truths together and worship you as you have revealed yourself to be. We pray it all in King Jesus' name. Amen.